Hi, everyone. Welcome to Packers Unscripted from Packers.com. I am Mike Spofford. He is the one and only Wes Hodkowitz. We're coming to you here from our studios at Lambeau Field West. It's the middle of the week. Packers 49ers for the NFC Championship will take place on Sunday, 5.40 p.m. Central Time. This is normally the show where we take a closer look at the Packers' opponent. We were just doing so with the 49ers about a month and a half ago, so we won't necessarily review all of that, but I do want to take a look at, before we get to some Pro Football Hall of Fame news later in the show, just to tease that a little bit, but I do want to take a look at the 49ers season, how it finished up after the victory over the Packers in Week 12. And when you look at how this unfolded for San Francisco, the Niners' final five regular season games literally came down to the last play of the game. Yeah. I mean, they, they were involved in crunch time game after crunch time game. They went 3-2. and two. They lost to the Ravens on a last-second field goal. They lost to the Falcons on a last-second touchdown. But they pulled out victories over the Saints, over the Rams, and over the Seahawks to win the NFC West and get that NFC's number one seed, which is why they are hosting the Packers this weekend. It was a re really uh, tough stretch of games, a gauntlet, so to speak, that the 49ers uh, finished their season. Yeah, and honestly, I think there's maybe one game in there that they didn't play well. I felt like the Atlanta game, they just they played poorly in yeah. that. Yeah, the other ones, that I one. mean, they had a couple things that didn't go their way, but, I mean, I, I thought they put together a good effort against the Saints. Obviously, the game against the Ravens was what it was. Robbie Gold, I believe, was still injured during that game. Um, and they, they Obviously, you know, the, the Ravens won it on a game-winning field goal. And then you go to that Seahawks game, and it's funny, Mike, when you look at how the Packers won that game against Seattle. Now, while they had a little bit more breathing room than the 49ers did, sure. very similar in how those second halves played out. Can you stop Russell Wilson, that one play, that one drive that you need to to fill, you know, get a victory? Yeah. San Francisco did that, and it just shows you that it doesn't matter – if you're the first-ranked defense or the last-ranked defense, if you're going up against Russell Wilson, you're in for a long afternoon. And when they needed, I felt, they needed to pull things together and make a statement, they did that against Minnesota. That was the game where they definitively put their foot down and said, we are the better team. Yeah. Because you're right, that was an absolute gauntlet. They won games that maybe they shouldn't have when you look at the Rams contest, and they lost a game against the Falcons that they very much should have won. They were the number one seed. They got the first round by. They put it to good use. They're very healthy, and they had the performance that they did against the Vikings. Well, and I think the game that everybody points to as probably the game of the year in the NFL as far as the regular season is concerned was that 49ers visit to the Superdome in New Orleans. Back and forth, one of the highest scoring games in the NFL. The final was 48-46. to New Orleans gets a touchdown. I believe it was less than a minute to go, like 50-some seconds yeah. on the clock. New Orleans takes the lead. The 49ers come back the other way, and they look. They're hanging by a thread. They're at fourth down. The game is on the line. And then George Kittle catches a pass, breaks some tackles, gets a big play down the field and that sets up the game-winning field goal. Not only, obviously, was that instrumental in the 49ers ultimately getting the number one seed, it also helped the Packers get a first-round bye because it tagged a loss right. on the Saints that ended up proving pivotal as far as uh, all of the tiebreakers and everything else went with regard to the playoff seeding. But that was one whale of a game, and I think that was the game that a lot of people said, okay, 
that's the one that really pegs the Niners as the team to beat yeah. in the NFC because they went into New Orleans. Everybody knows that's a tough place to play. They won a shootout, and, uh, and they did it in pretty impressive fashion. Yeah, and they got a two-point stop at the end of that game. You know, they, there was the touchdown pass from Breeze with 53 seconds to That's go. That's right, and the Saints went for two. They went for two because they want to be able to preserve Abs- it, get absolutely. the three-point advantage. Absolutely. And for the exact reason that played out, Robbie Gold comes down, makes a 30-yard field goal, 49ers win. But, you know, much like the Packers and, and Jair Alexander getting that sack of Wilson, you know, those, those can be such momentum-turning plays, even though they aren't always the first thing to the top of your mind. I just felt like the San Francisco 49ers showed a lot of fortitude and grit uh, during the second half of the season. Because, yeah, you can talk about those last five games of the regular season, all of them being one score. Before that, they had two knockdown drag out games against Arizona. That's right. Uh, yeah. they, they've really been tested when, when you look at how their season has played out. What was the other game, too? I'm trying to think of off the top of my head. Uh, Seattle beating them on November 11th, 27 to 24. Yeah, that overtime game on Monday night that almost yeah. ended in a tie. Like the over the overtime almost expired before the Seahawks won. Yeah, that game. and so much of this is put on the Packers for you know winning ugly and all these things. I mean, people kind of forget that once the 49ers lost, and even before that, you know them beating Washington nine to zero. I mean, they've had to win ugly too. That, that's what makes this game great. And as good as. Seattle has been in the second half this year and, and how they've won their share of one-score games. I think when you look at the true strength and makeup of the NFC right now, as I said on yesterday's show, it's Green Bay and it's San Francisco. It's these two titans that are finally going to yeah. clash here. Yeah. And as Kyle Shanahan's talked about, as Matt LaFleur's talked about, this is going to be a different game. I, I'm mostly just interested in seeing, one, what adjustments Shanahan makes offensively in this rematch against Mike Pettin, his former head coach when they were together in Cleveland, sure, and how Matt LaFleur tries to steer the ship differently for this offense in round two against San Francisco. What did he learn from maybe watching the Rams? What did he learn from watching what the Saints did? Is there certain avenues towards victory there that maybe the Packers didn't explore the first time that would allow them to get off to a faster start? Yeah, and obviously I think the Packers are, are looking for a faster start. Things went south early in that, that first matchup in Week 12, and the Packers never really recovered. That being said, you know, you look at the way the 49ers season ended, as we talked about with all these close games. You look at the way the Packers' entire season has gone with all these close games in the fourth quarter. You just get the feeling, just like with the Seattle game um, last week, that uh, that this one this one's going to be a, a four-quarter battle. The Week 12 result notwithstanding, yeah. the the overwhelming evidence with regard to these two teams is that these are the kind these are the kind of games that they play. I remember keeping an eye on that, I believe it was a Saturday night game in Week 16 when the 49ers were playing the Rams, which, of course, Packers fans had their eye on because of potential seeding possibilities and all of that. And the game is tied, and twice on San Francisco's game-winning drive to kick the walk-off field goal at the end, they had 3rd and 16 offensively. They converted it both yeah. times, you know, much like, you know, the Packers hitting the big third down conversions against Seattle to not give Russell Wilson another chance. The Rams were in great shape. You're at 3rd and 16. You get a stop. You got a minute or so on the clock. Jared Goff maybe drives them right. down to ki- to kick a field goal and and win that game, but um Jimmy Garoppolo converts a pair of 3rd and 16s. 
the the number of crunch time clutch moments that both of these teams have been through throughout the course of the season I think is what really makes this interesting that now they're the last two teams standing in the NFC. Yeah, and what is an NFL season like? It is a battle of attrition. It's trying to, you know, manage the highs and the lows of a year because as everyone always likes to talk about, it's been what, forty seven years now since a team has gone undefeated for an entire season <laughs> through the Super Bowl. You're going to take losses. You're going to take punches on your chin. But how do you bounce back from them? And I think San Francisco and Green Bay have been two of the most resilient teams in the NFL this year. And it goes back to confidence. Uh, these teams are not swayed by you know certain outcomes of adversity. They, if, they, if they're going to take a loss, they're going to learn from it, and they're going to try their best the following week to not replicate those mistakes. That's what stood out to me the most during the second half of the season with San Francisco because it's not like, okay, you have Jerry Rice and you got you know Garrison Hurst. You have guys that you need to feed the football to, and that's your offense. That's not the way they operate. They got three different running backs, four different running backs, if you want to throw Jeff Wilson in there, that can all take the ball out of the backfield. The Packers got a little familiar with Wilson in that first game. Sure. You, you have, yes, Emmanuel Sanders that came in, but they didn't just start piping the ball to Emmanuel Sanders every single down. You have different areas where they thrive in. I think they have the best tight end in football. They have the best fullback in football. <laughs> yeah. They win in unconventional ways, and they thrive unconventionally. That statistic, as I was watching the game against Minnesota that I wasn't familiar with, is the fact that Jimmy Garoppolo's average yards per pass are the league's low right now among quarterbacks. They ask so much in terms of yards after catch from their receivers to get the ball and then create afterwards. Mm -hmm. Get the ball in open field and let your athletes work. That's what's made them so, I, I think, honestly, dominant throughout the course of the year because if there's anything that is difficult to beat in the NFL, it's a team that consistently moves the chains and gets first downs. And San Francisco, for the large part of the season, has been one of the best at doing that. Yeah, absolutely. And when you look at last week's game against Minnesota, which really was quite a statement by the 49ers, the way they dominated that game, they obviously used the playoff by to their advantage. They got some guys healthy. And they were in control of that game pretty much from start to finish. Garoppolo made the one mistake. He threw the interception to Eric Kendricks. But the Vikings didn't totally capitalize on it. They only got a field goal out of it. Right. And, uh, and then the Vikings never were able to completely close the gap. What Minnesota was able to do in that game was limit George Kittle, which yes. not a lot of teams have been able to do. And I'm no X's and O's expert, and I did not sit and watch the game from start to finish. Had some other things going on on Saturday. But in stopping George Kittle, the one thing the Vikings were not able to do was stop the running game because, yeah. because San Francisco just pounded the ball. I think one of their touchdown drives, didn't they run the ball on every, every single play. play, like seven or eight plays for 55, 60 yep. yards, something like that? So Minnesota was able to take Kittle out of the game, but was that at the expense of not being able to stop the run? I mean, that's what makes these guys so tough to defend. And what you said about whatever adjustments Pettin is going to make, and as we've talked about, whatever adjustments Lafleur might make in terms of trying to get Aaron Rodgers out of the pocket, look at look at what the Rams did, uh, you know, in terms of uh, working sideline to sideline offensively to uh, to get that defense moving. It all sounds great in theory, but it you have to execute it so precisely against these guys because they're really, really good. Yeah, and the reason I'm going to agree with you that I think that is what happened, the emphasis on Kittle and the passing game cost them against the run is because San Francisco had 47 carries, uh, 43 if you don't want to count 
Garoppolo. Okay. Their longest carry was 11 yards. <laughs> I mean, th- this isn't Derrick Henry wearing you down, wearing you down, and then busting a big one. Right. They were just ahead of the chains every the, single the, time. They, they were in. They were in second and three, second and four. It seemed like the vast, the vast majority of the time I was looking at the screen, I wasn't seeing San Francisco in second and eight or second yep. and nine. It was second and four, yep. second and five, second and two. And, uh, and that's a great way to live offensively. Especially with that offense. When you use bunch formations and you're so tight end heavy, it isn't trying to get you know, stretch plays down the, the field. It's not trying to, to you know, run go routes and, and outbreakers and trying to do things to make an explosive play happen. They're just, they force them organically, if that even makes sense. I mean, they are just going to keep pushing the ball down your throat until you just can't take it. Yeah. And... That's the reason I think, for example here, 21 first downs for the 49ers in this game. There were seven for the Vikings. Jimmy Garoppolo only completed 11 passes. The time of possession was 38-27 to 21-33. Kyle Shanahan says all the right things this week, and I think people who don't really understand the 49ers and the way they win will say, well, you know, he's just giving his guys the right message that, you know, you can't look at that first game with Green Bay. you got to be focused on this one. Yes, but it's also the fact that they won that game in a very different fashion than they usually win. Yeah. The Packers mm-hmm. dominated time of possession. The Packers ran 70 offensive plays. The 49ers ran 45. Green Bay was being forced to go the length of the field. I don't even think they got 200 yards of total offense. And San Francisco was being opportunistic. That's a way to win, and it's allowed San Francisco to be a number one seed and has allowed them to be one of the best teams in football but that's not their bread and butter. Their bread and butter is doing what they did against to the Minnesota, Minnesota Vikings. Yeah. So that when yeah. you're in the fourth quarter, your will is broken. Yeah, that's what that's that's uh, that's definitely what they're after. And they had they did have some breakdowns in the fourth quarter yeah. late in the season that cost them a couple of games. To their credit, they also bounced back from a few of those breakdowns, and they did not ultimately give away the number one seed, and that's why they're playing at home on Sunday. And here's the other thing, too, you have to consider with this, and we talked about it a little bit, but it's big, man. Joe Staley's back for them now. Quan Alexander is back for them. D. Ford is back for them. And there's a certain line of thinking out there for as much attention as Bosa has gotten this year that a lot of that attention and a lot of that success is going hand-in-hand with having D. Ford on the field, much like having both of the Smith bros. When you get those multiple pass rushers and different ways to pressure, that's going to enable your playmakers to make more plays. Yep. This is a big challenge, no question about it. On the flip side, the Vikings, or the, sorry, not the Vikings, the 49ers have lost two players on the interior in the trenches, right. center Weston Richburg and defensive tackle, Great nose man. tackle DJ Jones are both out for the season now, so that'll be a little bit different from what uh, the Packers faced back in Week 12 Yeah, and well. Richburg, when you go back to when John Lynch was building this team and they signed him over from the Giants, I, I felt like that was, no, no pun intended, but a linchpin for their offensive <laughs> line because the way they want to run the ball in the way that he kind of, complements that style that is a challenge no question about it yeah Um, and it's going to be a good matchup yeah well quickly here some sponsor business select cousin subs locations are now offering delivery whether you're ordering catering or your favorite sub they're delivering right to you when you order online at cousinsubs.com cousin subs we believe in better okay i said we would get to the pro football hall of fame news so that is where we are going to turn the hall of fame's centennial slate this special class that is being inducted as part of the NFL's 100th season. There were several former Packers that were in the finalist stage, the contenders for um, this honor 
The only one who has been elected now to the Hall of Fame from that group is defensive back Bobby Dillon. Uh, Lavi Dilweg, Cecil Isbell, Vern Llewellyn, and former head coach Mike Holmgren, uh, who were all strong candidates, did not make the cut, unfortunately. We'll get to a little bit of that later. But I know that this uh, special blue ribbon panel centennial committee that the Hall of Fame put together to handle this process uh, to elect this special class. Ron Wolf was on it, and I know Ron Wolf is a very strong advocate for Bobby Dillon. He'd been on record saying that he thought as far as any former Packers who were deserving of the Hall of Fame but were not in, that he thought Bobby Dillon had, was the biggest oversight. So I'm sure that Ron Wolf had yes. a big part in Bobby Dillon getting, getting in here. And for those who are wondering, well, who exactly is Bobby Dillon? You might think the Packers' all-time leader in interceptions is someone like Herb Adderley or Charles Woodson. It's Bobby Dillon. He yeah. intercepted 52 passes uh, during his time with the Packers. That is still the franchise all-time record. And um, unfortunately for him, it's a posthumous honor, but congratulations to, uh, to his family and his descendants who will, uh, will have something to celebrate this year. Uh, it, it is quite an honor, however it happens to go into Canton. I am extremely happy for them, and I hope they can take some pride in this honor. And obviously, he did pass away in August at 89 years old, and our sympathies and condolences go out to them for that. But it is a tremendous honor. And as you said, Ron Wolf has been a huge advocate for him for a number of years. I know there's a number of Packer players that he kind of took a liking to, uh, just with him being the historian of this game that, that he is. Yeah. The thing I love about Bobby Dillon's story is, one, you have to understand, if Bobby Dillon would have been eight years younger and been there during the Lombardi years. This guy would have been probably a first ballot Hall of Famer. He <laughs> yeah. really would have been. Can you, he, can, you imagine, can you imagine Bobby Dillon, Herb Adderley, and Willie Wood oh all God. in the same secondary? As you say, if it, the era had just shifted maybe well, a little bit. And this is the other thing that's great about 40s and 50s. I felt like two of the strongest candidates, I, I'll be honest with you, uh, the gentleman from the 20s, I don't know much about them, but I know a lot about Cecil Isbell, and I know a lot about Bobby Dillon. And the thing is they both cut their career short. Uh, Dylan, and, and for the same reason, football was different in the 40s and 50s. Guys wanted to make money. You didn't make money by playing football. If you were married and had a family, you got to explain that to your wife why you're doing this <laughs> when there's more money to be made. And I think, what was it, plastics or whatever Dylan eventually got into. Yeah. And, and Cecil Isbell ended up quitting after the retiring, whatever you want to call it, after five years and got in uh, to being a head coach. And the thing that's great about Dylan, though, is he, he played for six head coaches in eight years. Those were lean years for the Green Bay Packers. He had 52 interceptions in eight seasons, the second most in the NFL at that time. And the guy, the gentleman that was in front of him, you know, played four more years and, and everything else. Uh, it was an incredible run that he got on. And the fact that he was blind in one eye. I mean, he only yeah. had one eye. He remarkable. lost the other one when he was 10. Yeah, re remarkable physical attributes that he had and how he played the game with that limitation with regards to his vision. Yeah, and still being able to to lead the NFL all those years, have so many all-pros, so many pro bowlers. And the, the other thing I love, too, about it is he's the, basically the one guy that kind of said no to – to Vince Lombardi. <laughs> uh, Lombardi comes in in 59. He basically had already, th that being Dylan, had basically made up his mind he was going to retire. Uh, Lombardi sees this film of him, identifies that this is one of our best players, if not the best player that I'm inheriting here. we got to find a way to get him to play. And there was just a lot of, you know, kind of pulling and stretching him. And, you know, 
there was fines that were like potentially thrown out for him not taking part in training camp, and the guy was just kind of beyond it. Lombardi eventually does convince him to come. I think there were some injuries that year. The season didn't go entirely according to plan, but he yeah. did get the one season with okay. Lombardi, which also resulted in his only winning season as a Green Bay Packer. Yeah, that's uh, that's certainly true. I know you, uh, you've you always been a big advocate for Cecil Isbell, and unfortunately things didn't go his way. Our team historian, Cliff Crystal, has written a lot on our website, Packers.com history section, if you want to go check some of that out with regard to Vern Llewellyn. Yeah. Um, because back in... Back in his day, Llewellyn was an all-around player, and he was also a punter. Yes. And field position was a huge part of the way the game was played back in the day. And, and Llewellyn, <laughs> yeah, Llewellyn was a huge weapon in yeah. that respect. And so I know Cliff Crystal's written a lot about uh, how he feels Vern Llewellyn has been overlooked for for too long as far as the Hall of Fame is concerned. I admit I don't know a lot about Lavi Dilweg other than that uh, crazy reporter in Dallas who tried to ask Aaron Rodgers Bay about it. City him. Lightning um, or whatever. Yeah. But uh, but that aside, the other one the other one to talk about too is that uh, unfortunately Mike Holmgren did not make the cut this uh, special centennial slate as they're calling it with this Hall of Fame class was to include two coaches and the two who made the cut who got in are Jimmy Johnson and Bill Cower. those who were watching the uh, playoff games over the weekend. Both of those guys in the studio shows both on CBS and Fox, they were informed as a surprise, essentially on live television, that they had made the Pro Football Hall of Fame. So congratulations to them and neat moments. I do feel bad for Mike Holmgren, though, and I have no problem with Jimmy Johnson and Bill Cower getting in. Jimmy Johnson, not only as a coach, but he was also a big part of personnel-wise, of yeah. building that Dallas dynasty of the early 90s. The problem, the only problem that I have really, it kind of goes back to my same, you remember the argument we were having about uh, when Steve Atwater as a safety has been a finalist yes. and until this year Leroy Butler had not been a finalist. And it felt like just because of the Super Bowl 32 result that the Broncos beat the Packers and Atwater has two Super Bowl rings and Butler only has one, that that's been some defining characteristic in terms of the process. Well, if the Seattle Seahawks win Super Bowl 40, is Mike Holmgren in and Bill Cowher not? Probably. I mean, and and yeah. to me that's unfortunate. It feel It feels like one... It feels like one game is what is is making these decisions, and and I just I don't like that. It should be it should be more about the entire body of work, and and uh, I I feel I feel bad for Holmgren. He led he he got to a Super Bowl three times with two different teams. Unfortunately, he only won one of them, and I think that's what's keeping him out of the Hall of Fame. Yeah, uh, and and I, I want to first off point out. Congratulations to Jimmy Johnson and Bill Cowher. Yes. I, I personally feel like the NFL, with with the adjustment that the Pro Football Hall of Fame has made with now having contributors, I'm starting to become more of an advocate for just having a co head coach make it every year. Uh, I just feel like there, for as much as people feel like there was a, a over, you know, so many seniors and, and contributors that are not being allowed to get in, I feel like there's really a logjam at coaches too. All that being said, I had one shoe in for this. It was Don Coriel. Yep, I was to I was totally with you, and um, that's where I was going to go next yeah, so, as well. I thought Coriel deserves has deserved for a long time to get in, and unfortunately, he's still not. I've I've always said uh, I it's it's a mantra and a maxim that Pete Doherty developed when I was at the Press Gazette. I've always stuck with it. It's have you did you change the game of football? Yeah, Don Coriel, he was a game changer for the game of football. Yeah, and I know you didn't. I know you. 
you didn't watch those Coriel offenses. I'm old enough to have said. Got to see some highlights. That, yeah. yeah. But I used to. I I was actually as a young kid. I was a big fan of those late afternoon Chargers games yeah. that you know that uh, that were out on the West Coast because watching what. Dan Fouts was doing with Charlie Joyner and Wes Chandler and John Jefferson and Kellen Winslow and Chuck Muncie in the backfield. I mean, what those offenses were doing, nobody else was doing that yeah. at that time. And that's what you say, like, did you change the game? Don Coryell and that uh, that air raid type of, you know, before the current air raid, his type of air raid passing attack was revolutionary yes. at the time. And it really did, it did change the game. It made the game a lot more exciting and uh, and I think it's unfortunate that uh, he got this far in this process with this centennial slate thing, and then he still he still is not in. Considering how close he's gotten in just the normal. Yes, and know, yeah, because he's, he's had he's had other opportunities, yeah. but it has never fallen his way. So so that was my shoe, and I had Jimmy Johnson and Mike Holmgren as the number two. Yeah, uh, I felt like those were the two other ones that were competing. That's for where it. that's where my mind was as well. Johnson for everything you just said, and Holmgren from the standpoint of you have to understand this organization where had been at the moves that he made not only just with this roster and, and getting the most out of Brett Favre but his coaching staff and what he had built in Green Bay and then honestly going to you talk about Super Bowl 32 he goes to Seattle and makes another Super Bowl there if he wins that's that, what, that that's what I mean like yeah. Super Bowl 40 was Holmgren against Cowher yeah and and that was Cowher's Super Bowl championship with the Steelers and hats off to him Holmgren doesn't win that one and yet here we are in this hall of fame decision and cowers in and yeah and, not. and i think honestly you win 32 or 40 i think either way Holmgren's in there absolutely so th this is the problem i think that this cowers situation creates and again i congratulate him on this honor but it, it does open sort of the floodgates here I, I think there's a lot of resumes that need to be considered including the coach that came after him now and mike tomlin there's a certain train of thought out there that Mike Tomlin's Hall of Fame candidacy is probably going to be better than what Bill Cowers even was, and I mm -hmm. hope the voters remember that here whenever they, that day comes. Yeah, I but agree. Sean Payton, uh, Mike McCarthy, th there's a lot of coaches now that you're going to need to really consider here, I think, because of the, the decision to put Bill Cowher in. Yeah, I think so, I think, I, and I think that is something that uh, that's going to be discussed now in the years moving forward, so we will see. But we've gone a little bit over time, so we're going to call it a wrap on this edition of Packers Unscripted. Be sure to follow all of our coverage of the team, everything going on here on NFC Championship Week on Packers.com. You can subscribe to us, like us on iTunes and other podcast services, and there's all kinds of great video content out there on the Packers YouTube channel. For Wes, I'm Mike. Thanks for tuning in, everybody. See you next time.